I'm Lauren. I'm Catherine. And I'm Danielle. Welcome to Unspun, a podcast by Population, where we're unraveling the interconnected systems and paradigms that are holding us back from a just and sustainable apparel and home industry. Hey, Danielle. Hey, Catherine. Hey. Hey, Lauren. So today's topic is a juicy one. Brands have been criticized for greenwashing for decades. Since companies started marketing about sustainability, there have been those who couldn't back up their words with actions. And in the wake of George Floyd's murder in May of last year, among too many others like Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and Tony McDade, and the resurgence of Black Lives Matter in the greater public consciousness, another dynamic began to be called out by the broader community, woke washing, a component of what we call performative marketing. Performative marketing can take many forms, from black squares to tokenization, savior storytelling, and single product lines cater to underrepresented consumers. All of it trying to say the same thing. We understand social inequity, and we're committed to doing the work. Ironically, it often signals that a brand actually isn't. In today's episode, we'll unpack greenwashing and performative marketing, and what we believe is part of the solution to address these toxic practices, authentic narrative building. We'll get into it after the break. Let's start with greenwashing. What is it? In general, greenwashing is when a brand communicates or makes a marketing claim touting a product has sustainable attributes or was made in a socially responsible way without offering more details or evidence to support those claims. Some examples are cherry on top examples, which I will get into or others are vague or irrelevant, while others are straight out lies. So what are the most egregious examples of greenwashing that you've seen? Well, there are a lot, I would say. You could start with H&M. I think that's a great place to start because a lot of their sustainability initiatives, even though they have a growing kind of list of things that they are doing, and some of them are respectable, but they aren't addressing the real issues of overproduction and overconsumption. One example is their conscious collection, which is essentially a capsule collection that makes up likely 1% of their total production. Uh, the same goes for another example from H&M, which is their loop recycling, which is an in-store exhibit, if you will, where you can turn old clothes into a sweater, a baby blanket, or a scarf for 11 to $16. Uh, this is at their flagship store in Stockholm, I believe. And it's a great example and proof of concept, but it's not addressing more relevant issues of H&M and their unsustainable business model. I love that you brought up H&M and, you know, not necessarily as, you know, H&M is the only company doing this or we're calling them out specifically, which we've talked a lot about in preparation for a lot of our episodes, you know, wanting to be honest and upfront about what's going on in the industry that, you know, there are trends and dynamics that we're seeing in a lot of places. But I think H&M is a great example because they're such a large company and they operate in so many places in the world and that they're really front and center of the sustainability movement. And they are engaging in greenwashing, as you mentioned, particularly as it relates to the fact that they put out a ton of products every year, which is a highly unsustainable practice. I'm curious your thoughts on, you know, what are the motivations for companies to engage in greenwashing? Because it seems like they have evolved over time and are a little bit different now than they were maybe 20 years ago. There is a growing demand on the part of industry organizations, as well as an increased awareness on the part of consumers as to what what brands are doing 
in their supply chains and the Im- real impact that that's having environmentally and socially. And from that, because there is this demand on the part of consumers specifically, brands are more motivated to make these sustainability claims without actually backing up what they're doing. I think you're totally right. And when brands started to kind of receive this call to action that they needed to build this into their storytelling, build sustainability conversation into their storytelling, they started making lots of commitments. There was Vision 2020 commitments. There were claims for the future. And again, you know, as Lauren already said, there there weren't always the actionable steps to get them there. So it was kind of this aspirational statement that may or may not be possible really for their business model. Yeah. And I think as part of that, just part of the system dynamics of what leads to something like greenwashing is when decisions are really motivated from a marketing perspective, that you see a trend that is valuable for your company to capitalize on, to earn more revenue. And when it becomes something that's really driven by a marketing impetus and isn't necessarily backed up by really robust strategy. That's when you get something like greenwashing because you have a marketing team that wants to present a story to a consumer to earn their dollars. And that story isn't representative of what's actually happening within the company. And just to be clear, there are a number of brands that are doing the work to back up their claims. And we want to be careful to not, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater that we aren't trying to police the industry. There's a number of organizations that are there to do just that. And that's why we end up where we are today, where every company out there has, you know, very bold commitments to sustainability, some vague, some more actionable. And I think it's it's really needed to hold the mirror up and have them take a look at why they have the strategies in place that they do and be able to help them build more authentic narratives into uh, their marketing strategies. But there's two sides to this coin when you're looking to build a more authentic brand narrative and uh, greenwashing is just one side. The social side is uh, what we're calling performative marketing in a few different forms. What are the most prevalent performative marketing tactics that we see in the industry? I think one of the most well-seen examples uh, this year specifically would be the Black Squares, the Solidarity Squares for the Black Lives Matter movement, in which brands and individuals, it wasn't just companies, but relevant to our conversation, brands were posting Black Squares on a blackout day. Blackout Uh, Tuesday. Blackout Tuesday. Yeah, to show solidarity, which as a demonstration of not taking up space, if it's just a black square, can be helpful. One of the things that was happening is that people were posting the black square and the Black Lives Matter hashtag, which then overpopulated the Black Lives Matter hashtag feed with black squares as opposed to the messages from the Black Lives Matter movement, um, which is part of where that got into trouble. In addition to, you know, like a black square in and of itself isn't necessarily problematic, but it's when someone posts a black square in solidarity, but they're not actually looking at the culture within their company 
where there are examples of racism in the culture, are those examples or instances of racism being addressed in your company? That's where you get into kind of a performative dynamic with posting something like a black square or even other solidarity messages. The black square was just one of them. But we also have seen historically a lot of tokenization of people of color in marketing materials, whether that was, you know, around representation and having a sole person of color or not even, you know, necessarily just people of color, but people of of any identity that's not the predominant powered and privileged identity of a cisgendered, able-bodied white person often being tokenized in marketing materials. And those are both externally to customers, but also internally within your organization. And then also things like savior storytelling, which is also really prevalent in how we talk about our supply chains and our supply chain partners with this brand narrative of empowering artisans and employing artisans. And then also seeing things like special product lines within companies, as opposed to looking at how do we center all stakeholders in the development of our product. Going back to your employee handbook. So you see that there is this photo of a multicultural you know, employee group on the cover of your handbook. But then internally in the company, you are not seeing that representation. You're not seeing that cultural, multicultural diversity. And I think that is, I mean, you do see how it's tied to this kind of idea of greenwashing where you are putting forth this message about who your company is, but you're not really living that reality. Yeah. I I like that phrasing, like you're not really living the reality. (laughs) It's like this, it's a, it is a story. It's a story about the company that you want people to think you are. You are. Not the actual representation of who you are. It's like, if you have, if you're showing all of this diversity and representation, which I know we've all talked about this, but it's like even the words we use, I, we don't like. Like diversity is a word I really dislike. But I think that's the way that most people can comprehend the concepts we're talking about. If you have diversity and representation in your marketing, how often does that representation not only reflect your company, but also like the leadership of your company? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it isn't that often, especially for these like legacy white-owned brands. That is not the reality. So it's... Yeah, it's this, it is, I think story is an important word to me. It's like, it's a story we're telling. Mm-hmm. It's not a reality we're representing. And that's where I, we see a lot of brands get into trouble around mm-hmm. greenwashing and performative marketing when they're trying to tell a story of how they want to be perceived. I think that's why this form of woke washing in June was so egregious and intolerable. There were brands making statements like, Our actions speak louder than our words. We stand in solidarity with the Black community. We pledge, you know, this much money to campaigns and organizations to help fight for racial equity and opportunity. Together is how we move forward. Together, we have the power to make change. Together, we must fight what is wrong and to make it right. You know, other statements like, our hearts go out to the Black community who has suffered too long to support the elimination and racial discrimination and hatred, donating 20% of sales to the NAACP. Uh, we are listening and stand in solidarity. I mean, these are just cropped from, you know, a number of different accounts during that time. And 
I mean, the amount of donations that went to NAACP, Black Lives Matter, I mean, it was up in the $5 billion range in a very short period of time. And just the, in, the performance of it was so profound that it was so reactive to the situation and wasn't, wasn't embedded in these companies' values to begin with or before the event of George Floyd's death. I think one of the sadder things to see was the disbelief that there was racism internally in companies that were already kind of jumping on the bandwagon to support Black Lives Matter, the movement, and making commitments on their Instagram or otherwise. And then, you know, a bomb drops in their own company and they're called out for racism. And, you know, obviously Reformation is a big example of that. And their founder, Yala Flalo, actually ended up stepping down. I will never forget seeing Dominique Drakeford's post that, you know, she was kind of giving them, giving other brands a head start. Like it was a warning. We see this happening. It's coming for you. And, you know, you can run, but you can't hide kind of thing. It was truly a reckoning for the industry. It was this time where there was I don't know, the this, this space and opportunity to call those companies out was catalyzed so much over the summer where people were really like listening. And it happened at so many companies. Anthropology, Reformation, so many brands being called out for Adidas, racism in their culture. And it kind of ties to the conversation we had last episode about accountability and why there is a need for accountability within brands who are shirking responsibility to their accountability in creating systems or cultures where people aren't thriving or even be just being subjected to harm beyond thriving. I think another issue for me with the the dollar commitments, I think it was maybe Fashion Nova. A lot of brands did this where they committed exorbitant amounts of money to movements. And I think a big unanswered question to the brands is how are you paying people of color in your organizations and in your supply chains? Because if you're really about addressing racial inequity, but you're going to pay people below a living wage and then, you know, performatively demonstrate that, or, you know, performatively say I'm donating a million dollars to these organizations, you're contributing to the problem over here. And then you're trying to make it okay that you're doing so by donating to these other organizations over here. That was really brought to bear during the COVID crisis when, and the remake, the whole remake campaign of, um, what was it? Pay up. Yeah. There were all these brands that have all of these sustainability claims. They're doing so much, you know, to put forward this message of being a, you know, more ethical and more responsible brand. And yet they were turning their backs on their entire, their entire supply chain and were not paying their garment workers for, in a lot of cases, garments that were already made. This is where the form of performative marketing in in the form of savior storytelling, I think, is most prevalent. It's really common in the artisan space for there to be a white founder from the global north and working with, you know, overseas a group of women or individuals that do a craft. And even the word artisan versus maker is like a complicated word. A lot of founders and their founder stories will put ownership on the people they work with, calling them my artisans. And 
it's not always the case, but it's it's way too prevalent in this space to not note. And the problem is is always that it's one from the perspective of the white gaze. So how do I market this product in a way that people like me, a white person, are going to connect with and want to buy? And then you're usually saving or helping this group of overexploited people in an underdeveloped place. And it just reinforces those power dynamics of often colonial legacies. And rarely are these players coming together as equals in that partnership. There's always undertones of othering, often appropriation of their what they make, and usually a profit off of someone else's culture. And I mean, there's so many brands out there that are, you'd think, actually owned by the artisans. And you find out that it's owned by, you know, a woman in the Midwest that just like took a liking to their product and brought their product to the United States. The theme of of things being made for the white gaze is so important to this conversation, both from the development of the problem in the first place, and then also the solutions that we're seeing to the problems continuing to be made for the white gaze, which we talked a bit about uh, when we were preparing for this episode. But it's like this: the solutions feel designed to make white people feel better and not about actually creating equity. And it's, yeah, it's just frustrating to see that happen over and over again when you look at something like Savior Storytelling specifically and the relationships between predominantly companies in the Western world sourcing from artisans all over the world, the way that the stories are told about supply chain partners and value chain partners is so dominated by the brands. And I just wonder if we asked our supply chain partners how they would like their stories to be told, what stories would we be telling? Would They would probably not be the same stories. I've been thinking a lot about this year is just that control over storytelling and being a really big component of performative marketing, that it's like, who is telling our stories? Who are the stories being told for? And that really ties in so much to why we're seeing the same problems happen over and over again. You know, I love, Lauren, that you and I got to experience this tension in real time in our jobs together when we worked at a brand. I was pushing for a marketing story And you were always careful to make sure that I was bringing it back to a place where it was an authentic narrative for the brand. And while I wanted to make sure that the brand could be successful, you were always there to remind me that it could not be at the exploitation of the workers that we partnered with. Um, And it was just a huge growth in my life to, you know, I had always been very concerned with how I'm partnering with people and, but that there is a real tension there for marketing departments and sustainability departments to be able to pull a thread through that's true about how they operate and be able to share that with a customer. It's a hard thing to do. And I have a lot of compassion for marketers that are telling brand stories right now and ship making that difficult shift to narratives. It doesn't seem like it should be so hard. Just tell true stories. But when you're charged with selling a product, it it gets very sticky. 
so it, it is important, I think, for us to come back to that place where we're, you know, not wanting to throw marketers under the bus, but rather just like call us all in to do better and build better relationships with people so that we can make better brand stories that are more authentic. I appreciate you bringing that up and the history of our work um, and talking about the pressures on marketers, because I think something else in the example of of our work together at that brand was the access to decision-making power that we had there. And so while the, the pressure on you as marketer was to sell the company and the product and the brand and tell and storytell our sustainability strategy. We also had access to dictate what that story and narrative was going to be, which oftentimes marketers, especially in large organizations, do not have the ability to do. It's really just that top-down approach of decision-making that like, this is who we are as a brand. This is what we're going to communicate. You need to sell our product, go. And there's not an opportunity to have a dialogue about what are the impacts of the ways in which we're telling the brand story on consumers, on people within the organization, on value chain partners, that there isn't often an access to that. So I, I appreciate you bringing that up because it's a really complicated our hope is to unpack issues so that we can move forward together and not, you know, put any one group of people in the seat of blame, but say that, you know, this is something that we need to move beyond and devise better solutions to if we're going to move forward toward more equity within our businesses. And nothing's going to happen if we can't all have this conversation I think it's really important for brands that have kind of had that aha moment and they are moving past to not turn around and point the finger at brands that aren't able to have that conversation yet or not that they're not able to, they should be. I think it's so important that it's not an us and them uh, conversation. It really has to be how as an industry are we creating the solution to what became a absolute disappointment to way too many people um, this summer and a performative mess. I think that this is a great opportunity to get into what we feel like is part of the solution to greenwashing and performative marketing, which is authentic narrative building. I just want to start by saying I think authentic narrative building. I think the basis of that is really for brands and companies in general to understand what makes sense for them. And that it's not this cookie cutter model where they can kind of mimic what maybe their competitors are doing. It's really going to be something that's individual. And and I think the starting point for that is really for brands and professionals within that company to really kind of do that kind of ideating around what makes sense for them and their brand or their company, the history of their company, their supply chain. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that that distinction of like, there's no pre-made model to drop into your company that's going to be your authentic narrative because that in and of itself is untruthful storytelling if you're telling someone else's story as it relates to yourself. Um, And so I think a part of that is brands doing the work of understanding where they're at, which you mentioned. It's like, what's the legacy of your company what are your supply chain relationships? What are the relationships you have with your employees and your customers? Like having an understanding of that without that, 
you can't really tell an authentic narrative. If you don't know, then you're just making things up. I want to bring up an example also around uh, regenerative agriculture, which is something that I am a huge proponent of. I think it's this amazing kind of concept and practice. But this Instagram feed I follow, a growing culture, which is a nonprofit organization working to create an equitable food system, posted something on Instagram saying that it has been criticized as a whitewashed hope that will do little to address the climate crisis or environmental issues associated with agriculture if we only take this particular kind of land practices out of context and are not considering the deeper indigenous worldviews. And my point being that we need to also bring in the voices. You know, I, I am a person of color, but it's not and, and regenerative agriculture is something that I've been like pushing, you know, in interviews or just as an idea, and yet kind of took out of context this like, you know, greater historical context and that regenerative agriculture are is essentially practices that are rooted in kind of indigenous beliefs. And I don't know, I'm just, I guess, calling myself out and how I kind of overlooked that. And again, I think in na- authentic narrative building, we do need to also be bringing in the voices of people of color, indigenous people, or people that have kind of the historical experience with the concepts of sustainability. What is sustainability is something that is fundamental to indigenous beliefs that we've ignored for centuries now. Yes. Yeah. That is so key. The, the acknowledgement and humility particularly acknowledging like where these ideas come from and not putting them off as our own modern. I think that's another thing we see like this modern sustainability, this modern version of sustainability. Some of our like technologies are modern, but the concept of sustainability in terms of from a like living in harmony with other people in nature is not a new concept. So I appreciate you bringing that up. And for me, that touches on another aspect of authentic narrative building that's really important, which is which stakeholders you're centering and decentering the dominant powered stakeholder to help us really expand our conceptions of what we need to do and who we're considering when we not only like create our marketing materials, but also our products, because marketing is a part of the function of a business to sell our products. So, you know, our products are inherently tied to marketing. So how are we like really thinking about our stakeholders and who we care about as it relates to our business is really important in terms of our ability to tell a truthful story um, and try to fill some of our own blind spots. I think um, cultural humility in that was kind of the first step. People kind of woke up to the idea of, oh, I should be culturally humble. My culture isn't what dominates everything. And I love the work that Manpreet Kalra is doing at Art of Citizenry. And she has just a very strategic and very nice way of walking a white founder through a process of realizing their lack of cultural humility. She asks questions of the founder in this series. We're so far past these questions, I think, now in the industry it needs to be so much more blatantly asked of brands and told, you know, you do not have the power to empower someone and you're acting like a savior. Don't do it anymore. So I think we're just, we're definitely moving into a different 
conversation together in the industry. It's a really interesting time. You know, something that we've talked about a lot is that authentic narrative building really requires equitable relationships. If you're not committed to equitable relationships within your organization, with all of the stakeholders in your value chain, it's really hard to talk about an authentic narrative or to to share an authentic narrative. Because inherently, if you don't have a commitment to that, then there are things that aren't pretty that are happening within your organization that you're not going to want to share. So then the story that you're telling becomes untruthful because you're withholding information. And I think that's an important consideration as well, that if we're only telling pieces of our story, we're curating a story that we want other people to perceive And then it inherently becomes untruthful and it's no longer authentic. We have to get to a place where we're comfortable sharing the ugliness of where we're at in our journeys so that we can be truthful about where we are and be willing to be held accountable to doing better and acknowledge that we're failing because without that, we're still just participating in this performance. Yeah, I think that is a really important point that just that you have to start somewhere. Thanks for listening to another episode of Unspun and for joining the conversation to create a new vision for the future of fashion and home. Unspun is produced by Cambridge House and mixed and edited by Compost Media Flow. Our theme music is by Richie Quake. Cover art by Esthete Design Studio. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 